know if you've had the experience of uh, traveling um, someplace, particularly someplace where uh, it's, it's much older than most places in the United States, and so in parts of Europe or or Asia, and and to walk around ruins. Um, so maybe a centuries-old castle or something like that, or a fortress. I mean, there are places, Native American uh, lands here in the United States, where you get a, a glimpse of that. But so, some structure or some uh, that some city, even a walled city, that you can tell used to be this magnificent place, and now it's dilapidated and you know weeds overgrown and and walls falling in and roof collapsing and all of all of that kind of thing. Or even, I mean, just in our own context, maybe you, you've seen or had a chance to walk around. Uh, it could be an old farmhouse or something that's been long since abandoned and and kind of, but. Or even a town. I remember growing up, my grandparents and all my family lives up in northeast Oklahoma and southeast Kansas. And uh, my, one of my, my dad's mom, uh, they lived right on Route 66, the old Route 66 that had been bypassed. And so this little town of Baxter Springs, Kansas, you, you know, had the, you can tell there used to be this movie theater. And you can tell that by the, just the, the streetscape, the, the, this used to be this bustling thriving little town and now it's just kind of washed up nobody lives there anymore and uh but but you can imagine what life was like when when something like that was built and 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 uh and it was lived in and there was also activity and life there and we say well what what happened what what was it that happened well, as we look in the first chapters of Genesis and we, and we compare them to the way that life is for us today and we can't help but ask that same question, what, what happened? What, what is all, all the way the life is today and the decay and the disease and the death and all of the, the troubles that we know today and why we sing all of these songs about trouble and, and, and even in the good times and the bad. We have these bad times. Why, why is this? We're living in the same world, but it looks so vastly different from what we read in these opening uh, verses of Genesis. We, we can only imagine what it would have been like to have, have lived in that paradise, but now paradise has been lost and it is overgrown. And so starting in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, where Jeff began reading just a moment ago, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, Moses is, is setting us up for the greatest tragedy in human history. That's really where things are moving. And so we, we get to see the way things used to be, the way the earth was when it was first made, alive with activity, this idyllic environment and, and people walking in perfect an intimate communion with God. This is the way it was intended to be. This is the way it was in the beginning. But then there's now. And so we're going to see this progression over the next couple weeks here. So today it's God and man in the garden. And next week we're going to see God and man in marriage. And then we'll see God, man in the fall on the third week, Lord willing. And so we begin a, a new section here in chapter 2, verse 4. Remember last time we said the chapter break would be better uh, at, cha- at verse 3. And so we're starting a new chapter, as it were, here in verse 4 of chapter 2 in our English Bibles. And, but that, that's not just my subjective opinion. That's indicated in the original text. And so in, in verse 4, there's this little Hebrew word, and you don't see it exactly in English, but you see this phrase translated the same way, and we'll see it many times in Genesis. But the Hebrew word is a little word, toledot, 
And it's tr- and, and so our, the English translation of that one word is that phrase, these are the generations. You see that in verse 4. This is the history. This is the account of. It may be translated differently in your copy, but... Ten times this word is used in Genesis. Ten times it's marking this transition in, in, in the book. And there are these ten different sections in the book of Genesis. And so just to give you a, a sampling, turn over to chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. There's that word. Verse, chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, and on and on and on. We could keep going. There's ten of these. Each of these Toledotes tells us the history or the generations or the account of a person. And so we get back, though, and we see in ours that it's different. This is different in verse 4. What's different? There is no person. What does he say? This isn't focusing on a person, it's, on, it's focusing on creation itself. This is the, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. This is the history of the universe. And, and it tells us, and what, what follows then becomes, what became of the universe after man entered the picture? What happened? This is the history. And, and we're going to see it move from blessing to curse. And so verse 4 again, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now if you have ever, or if you were to choose to take a religion course at a university around here, um, most likely you would hear a professor say that what you have in Genesis 1-2, if they if they covered origins and of Christianity, they would say that what you have here is you have two separate creation accounts. And Genesis 1 and 2. And so they probably poke a lot of fun at Christians and believing the Bible. And, and this is one of the places they look. Because what they would say is what happened is whoever wrote Genesis, and of course they don't think it's Moses, uh, but whoever wrote Genesis just compiled. He, there were these two kind of creation origin stories, myths, and he, and he just kind of lumped them together and didn't really even realize that there were these, uh, you know, that they were self-contradictory. And so he just kind of put them together. He couldn't choose which one was better, which one he liked better. He just mashed them up beside each other and just let them stay there. And that's how, that's how you explain Genesis 1 and 2. That's a profound misreading of the text. Uh, so what's happening in, in verses 4 and following of Genesis 2 is that Moses is, is focusing in on what happened on day 6 of creation week. So God making man. So you have your, I don't have my tablet, I've got my iPad here. And so you, if you have uh, your smartphone, which we only use now for cameras and other things, I realize. I don't even know why they call them smartphones anymore because I hardly see anybody phoning anybody with them. Uh, but we ha- you have your smartphone, you, you take a picture, and then you look at the picture, and what do you do? You spread those two fingers out, and that picture you know, expands, and you can zoom in on a part of the picture. Of course, since you're going to be yourself, and you want to make sure your face is right in the picture and the, and the group shot and everything, but, but you zoom in. Well, that's what's, what's happening on, in Genesis 2, 4 and following here. Is it's, it's like Moses, he, he, he's, he's taken a picture in a sense of creation week, days 1 through 7. And now he's, he's putting his fingers there and he's, he's spreading it out and he's zooming in on day 6. And we get to see it with greater clarity and greater detail. Genesis 1 is the big picture. Genesis 2 is, is this focus on earth and more specifically man. Creation of man. I know some of you have probably seen, um, they were 
very popular several years ago, the, the series that Louis Giglio did, the sermon he preached on uh, the heavens and the earth and God's glory in the heavens and the earth, and I think it was on DVD, How Great Is Our God, and, and worked together with Tomlin on that. But he, he used those slides showing the, uh, the, the earth in comparison to the relative size of other objects in space. So in, in our own uh, galaxy and our sun, our moon, and, and beyond our galaxy in the universe and some of these just massive stars, these supernovas. And so just seeing how, how small the earth is in comparison to all of these uh, just massive objects in space. And, and so the, the, what you come away with is just... You come away with just feelings of insignificance, kind of like Psalm 8. We just read, what is man that you're mindful of him when I consider the work of your hands and all the things that you've made in the universe? What, what are we? And, and so from the perspective of those telescopes and the Hubble telescopes, we just see we're such a tiny significance of such tiny significance. But what this is telling us here right away in scriptures is, is what matters is not the perspective of the Hubble telescope. What matters is the perspective of our Creator. And what the Creator says is what's happening on that little speck of space dust called Earth is ultimately the most significant thing that's going on. And, 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 and so, the one other thing I want to note at the outset before we really get into walking through this text together is, is the use of God's name here. And so, for the first time in Scripture, because we're just on page 2 of the Bible, we, we see the name Yahweh. Or Lord. If you see it in your English Bibles, it's Lord in all caps. And so that's, that's translating in English that word Yahweh. And, and it's used in connection here with the name, uh, Hebrew name. We've talked about this if you've been with us. Elohim, which is God. That's, and so in the English text, it's the Lord God in verse 4 there. So Elohim is a title that we've seen so far in the book of Genesis used for God. We translate it again, just kind of our plain vanilla word in English, God, and so I, I know I realize it can kind of sound dull, but that, what we're saying is, we talk about Elohim, this is the one God who created everything, and so it speaks of His majesty and His transcendence and His omnipotence, this one true God who brought the universe into existence by, simply by His spoken word, that's Elohim. But here in verse 4 and following, Moses doesn't just use Elohim. Again, he uses the divine name, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. Now, again, remember those first hearers and readers of, of Genesis. Who was, who were these words first delivered to? As God gave these, this, this account and this revelation to Moses and he, he spoke them to his people Israel as they're wandering in the wilderness. And so, so Yahweh, just think of how important that is. Yahweh is the name that, that, that they're so closely connected to. Yahweh is the name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush. I am. Yahweh is the name associated with His relationship to His people. Yahweh is the God who has drawn near to them. Yahweh is the God who has drawn them into covenant with Himself. Yahweh is the God who is personally present with them. Yahweh is the one who blesses them and keeps them because they're His. That's, that's what they are thinking when they hear that. And so, as those original readers heard this, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to connect these dots. The very same God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in the universe. 
that, that, is in the, that is in the beginning is the same God who makes covenant and keeps covenant with His people. He's saying this. You are God alone. You're the only one whose power none can contend. I don't remember all the words, but I, I just thought of that phrase over and over as we sing. You're the only one. You're the only God. You're the only God. And this is what the Lord is saying to His people. I am the only one. I, Yahweh, the one who called you, redeemed you, made covenant with you. I am the only God. I was the only one there in the beginning. I did it all. And so this is a powerful connection when, when this, this, this Yahweh is, then, is introduced into the narrative here and attached to Elohim, the Lord God. And so over and over in this section, it's going to be Yahweh Elohim. Twenty times in chapters 2 and 3, we'll see those two connected. There's one exception. When is it? When the serpent speaks. He will not use the name Yahweh. He is, he is a stranger to the covenant. Um, Alright, well, back to the main road. We have, we're going to see four features of, of before the decay, before the ruins. What was life like? What, was, what do we see in the beginning? God, man, and the garden here. What do we see? And there's four things we're going to know, four features of this. One is that God created us. He created us so we can relate to Him. And we've said this somewhat already in Genesis, but it becomes very clear as, again, the, the fingers are expanded, the picture gets blown up for us here in, on, 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 of day six. Look at me at verse five again. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God, and there's kind of parenthetical statement here, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and thus, and was watering the face of the ground, and then we'll see the creation of man. Now, in general, verses 5 to 6, they're simply telling us what creation was like before man. Exactly what they mean, I don't know. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I can tell you what other people think they mean, and I've read a lot of pages and of people explaining, you know, and there's different understandings, but, and some of you will probably rush up here after the service and tell me exactly what they mean, and that's fine. Um, but I, I'm just. Some say that verse Genesis one one and Genesis two four that we just read a moment ago they correspond to each other. So this is in, uh, therefore then chapter one verse two the formlessness void darkness that corresponds with verses five and six. And so that's what the connection is. Maybe that's what it's saying. Others say two five and six what we just read here. That corresponds and relates to Genesis 1, 9, and 10, which is the formation, the creation of dry land. Maybe that's... I don't know exactly. But what is clear is Moses is describing the condition of the land, of the earth, before the creation of man. And that's the important thing. There was no shrub. There was no, there was no plant. Because why? There was no rain and there was no man to cultivate the ground. And that's what's clear. And so there's this beautiful play on words in the, in the Hebrew text. And it doesn't quite come out like this in English, but... It, uh, literally something like, there was no Adam, Adam, there was no Adam to cultivate the Adama. And, and so there was no dirt person to cultivate the dirt. That's essentially what it's saying. And so one of the, one of the things we're going to see as we walk through uh, this today and, even, and next week, there are, there are these little snapshots in the text that anticipate coming judgment. And we get one of those right here. And so here we see God preparing the earth to bring forth shrubs and plants that are going to be cultivated and cared for. 
What's going to happen in the curse, though? I mean, man's challenge is going to be to exercise dominion over that ground that, that, to, to make it do what it was doing in the beginning. Before weeds and thistles and thorns. That's, that's what's coming. Gardening pre-fall wasn't nearly as futile and toilsome as it is post-fall. And so again, you just see this little, little indicator pointing forward. Another, another one of those, you see the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. That too is anticipating judgment that's coming. In chapter 7, verse 4, when God's going to just open the heavens and rain's going to flood the earth. So you see these little, little windows that are, again, pointing us forward to this tragedy. But again, here's the main point in five, verses 5 and 6. Before man came, the earth was in an uncultivated state. And that's setting us, for the, setting us up for the truly remarkable thing, which is in verse 7. What happens in verse 7 isn't confusing or unclear. It's very straightforward and incredible. Verse 7 again. Then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, He formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the very breath of life and the man became a living creature. Or maybe a better translation, a living soul. And so, this is, these are our origins. Our origins are more humble than coming from apes or whales. We come from dirt. <laughs> we are dirt people. That's, we're dirt bags, we could even say, I guess. Um, Psalm 103, verse 14, God knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. I mean, this is, this is how God formed us. We're not made from super dust, from magical fairy dust. It's just plain old dirt. It's dust. That's the word here. Dirt from the ground. And there's a, again, there's another little, little picture that's anticipating judgment that's coming. Because man's origin in life is also going to be his destiny in death. We'll see this very soon in chapter 3. From dirt you came to dirt you will return. This is going to be part of the curse. But there is something wonderfully unique. Something special about humans. God didn't just, you know, it's not just dirt. He formed us from the dirt. That's a, that's a very graphic word. Form. We've seen a lot of words. We've seen two words, really, for creation. In chapter 1, God created that kind of out of nothing. He just made it. And, and, and then we've seen the word for do, which is He kind of formed. But this, this word, it carries the idea of an artist, of a sculptor, or a potter. So Genesis 1, God spoke and things came into existence. But when, but when we spread the fingers and we zoom in on day six and we, and we look at the creation of man, it's not that just God didn't just say, let there be man and there was man, but the, the reality is we see God Himself, Yahweh Elohim, taking dirt from the ground and forming it and shaping man. That's the picture. Bruce Waltke, in his commentary on Genesis, he said, God as the artist is bonded to His work. A great picture, and you think about the image of a sculptor, a, a potter. Your 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 hands are in it. Your movements are what's shaping it and and directing. You're connected to it, and so God is bonded to His work in creating man as His as His image bearers. And so then God does something that's even more remarkable. Something again totally unique to humans and all other creatures. This is unique. He breathes into Adam's nostrils the very breath of life. 
Derek Kidner captures this, uh, what the, the significance of this. He says, breathed is warmly personal with a face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. He's not just making, no, he's giving of himself as he forms man and causes him to live. So here's Adam, the first dirt man, and he, he's not, he, he can't stand, he can't move, he can't walk, he can't talk, he can't sing, he can't feel, he can't remember, he can't do anything. He's just, he's just there, he's laying. He, 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 God, and God bends over and carefully, tenderly breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. That's the image. And the first man, Adam, he opens his eyes and for the first time inhales and exhales and looks around and sees this incredible, beautiful world that God has made and given him dominion over. And then the text tells us, in very simplicity, the man became a living creature or the man became a living soul. And I, and I, I prefer that translation, and some of yours probably say this, ESV does not, but living soul. In the, in the sense, it's not just that man now had animate life like all of the other animals and plants. That he was just alive. That's, it's saying more than that. He's saying he has God's life in him. God is giving of himself and making man alive. We are, we are utterly unique in this way from all other creatures. Before this breath of God, man was just well-formed dirt. He, he, but after the breath of life into man, something changed. Man became a living soul. Do you understand that the idea, and it's very common even in our own day, and it, and it has very ancient roots, but the idea that my body is somehow just a prison house for my soul, that's a raw pagan idea. Uh, that, that Any kind of sharp dualism between body and soul that makes the body bad and the soul good is, is, is not rooted in Scripture. It's rooted in ancient pagan Gnostic thinking. And so God creates the body and He creates it good and then He breathes into Adam's body this breath of life and man doesn't just get a soul, man becomes a soul, a living soul. You're not simply a body with a soul. You are a living soul. You are a body-slash-soul being. It's united. And so, so this is not, it's not hard to see even practically. If you think about taking, taking the realm of counseling, for instance, and, and when you're counseling and helping people work through change and, and, and any, any kind of area, sometimes we're, we think we've got, to, we've got the spiritual and we've got the physical, and those two are unrelated. And so we want to deal with the spiritual and physicals over there but and so the goal can become okay what what's what and how do we treat what and that's what we're thinking which category are we in which container but you realize quickly that your body and soul are in this interdependent state with each other and it's not always it's not always some easy thing to make a sharp distinction between the physical and the spiritual because that's not that's how, that's how God made us he made us integrated soul body and and that's the whole person and so just and as an example, will, will will sinning, habitual sinning, bring about guilt if you don't confess that and repent from it? Well, yes, it will. It'll bring guilt in your life. Now, is guilt primarily a physical or spiritual phenomenon? It's it's primarily spiritual, 
but are there impacts on your physical existence? You better believe it. I mean, Scripture even bears this out. Psalm 32, David, his guilt brought about physical effects because he committed and covered up adultery and murder. And so he's just wasting away and he's physically affected by that. Or another example, if you're, if you're sick, if you're physically weak and exhausted or mentally, emotionally fatigued, and, and does that have an effect on you spiritually? Oh, yes, it does. Absolutely. And the Bible's full of this imagery. In the book of Proverbs, for instance, all of this is truth showing us that there's this interconnectedness between body and soul. One's not bad, the other's not good. And so, so you're not a body with a soul. You're not a, just a soul with a body. You're a body-soul entity. And I'm not trying to, to blur distinctions that there are between physical and spiritual, but I, I'm just saying we, we tend to separate those more than Scripture does and gives us warrant to. So a, few, a couple implications before we move on, and we have to move on. One, it's just this should be very humbling to us. That God has made us from the dust of the ground. Um, we are, uh, th- there's an earthiness to our humanity. Some of us wear that earthiness better than others. Um, but we, we realize that we're, we're fragile. We're, we're, it's not there's this innate specialness to, to the physicality of us. And John Calvin, I think, says it well, and I'm going to use his words, so I don't, you can't throw tomatoes at me for saying this. He says, in looking at this, says, he must be excessively stupid who does not hear learn humility. <laughs> All right, it was him, not me. Okay, so it should be a humbling thing. But the other side of that is, it's, there's this dignity to humanity. We're living souls, image bearers of God. We've talked a lot about that already. But there isn't just some physical reality to our existence. There is this unbelievable spiritual reality that is unique to humans from all other creatures. We're not simply made in the image of God even to, to, to just represent Him to, uh, to the world and just exercise dominion over other creatures in the world. We are made to live in communion and covenant with Him. In other words, we're not just God's hired hands to kind of keep, keep an eye on His farm. And so He just, well, I'll create people and they can be my, you know, have dominion. And that's, that's not how God sees man. It's not why God created man. God didn't didn't make us to be hired hands. He made us to enter into this living, dynamic, covenant relationship with Himself. And so the thing that makes a human so incredible, it's not the complexity of the human body. And that is astounding. And I realize, and we, our bodies, they bear the fingerprints of the Creator. And just think of the human eye and the ear and the brain and the heart and all that's going on in the human body. It's It's amazing. But that's not the most amazing thing about being human. The most amazing thing about being a human is that you are a living soul. You are made for relationship and communion with God. And, 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 and when you get that, that makes total sense why Jesus would say, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So we see... Those holding together in these verses. Second, second feature of life before the ruins. What, what do we see? It's this, is that God created a perfect place for us to dwell with Him. 
God created a perfect place for us to dwell with Him. We see this in verses 8 to 14 here. And so, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And so, Yahweh Elohim plants a garden. Some of you get real excited when you see language like this. God's a gardener. I know you gardener folks out there. But here's what this text is supposed to do for us. Here is, here is the creator of heaven and earth. The maker of everything in the universe. All of those distant stars. Everything in the cosmos. His transis, transcendent, majestic, glorious creator. And this glorious creator, Yahweh Elohim, plants a garden. You go from this broadest expanding, you zoom in, and, and it's this, this little patch of land. This is narrowing focus. And that's supposed to be striking to us. This, this garden, this, it just, it's literally just an enclosed area. It's, it's, it's a fenced off area, as it were. It's marked off. In uh, New English translation, they call it an orchard. And what we see in the text, and that's fine. That's a fine translation. It's rich in trees and water. But this, this marked area. God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, east is, again, from, from the perspective of Sinai, where this revelation is coming from Moses' perspective. And so we, don't, we can't be 100% certain exactly this region, but it, we know the Tigris and Euphrates River. Those are the two rivers that are still known to us today. And So this would be somewhere in, in modern-day eastern Turkey, Iraq. Uh, that's, the, that's the region. And so the garden is not Eden, the garden is in Eden. Eden is the wider regional area, and the, uh, the garden is located in that. And, and, but verse 9 again, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up in that garden every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So what do we see? The garden is beautiful, and it's bountiful. This is, this is paradise. I mean, the, the earliest... Greek and Latin translations, that's how they translate the word Eden. It's paradise. The word Eden means delight. It's, it's delight. It's paradise. It's this picture of lushness and extravagance. And every tree in that garden is delightful to the eye and is delightful to the palate. The fruit is. It's just extraordinary. You get this picture in verses 10 to 14. There's this one main river that's the source of these four branches that go off and, and water the garden. And again, you have two rivers we know too that are unknown to us. But there's this, there's this abundance of gold and other, other uh, precious stones and resources there. It's just, it's extravagant. And then look at verse 9. Right in the center of the garden, God plants two particular trees. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now this is masterful writing. Take note, students. Uh, I mean, he, he's, he's, his words here are very streamlined. He doesn't, he doesn't go into an immediate explanation of the significance of these trees. Uh, he, he just, just their names alone, though, are enticing. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and their, their location highlights the importance of these trees. But... but but this reference, it's, it's anticipating the significance of these trees before the tragedy even comes. Well, we know it's coming, 
But, but he doesn't spell it out yet. He just mentions them and then he goes on and comes back to them. And so here's just a passing reference. Now, the tree of life, it, it sounds so good. It just, and probably the idea is the tree which gives life or eternal life. And so, uh, again, this is another anticipatory picture of judgment. Because after the fall, Adam's excluded from the garden. And what do we, what we read in verse 22 of chapter 3? lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so he's going, to be, he's going to be excluded from the garden and removed from access to that tree of life. Now it's going to enter into the picture again one day, and this is still in our future. Revelation 2.7, To the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so this his tree of life gives life, it grows in eternity, um, but here it's just mentioned in passing, we'll, and, and so we'll we'll move forward, and we're going to come back to the tree of knowledge and good and evil because it's going to be relevant to what we're going to see in just a moment. But here's this garden paradise God created for man, and He puts Adam there. He just places him there. The man whom He had formed. It's this place of blessing, of peace, of well-being, of shalom. This is the garden that God puts him in. Perfect beauty, peace, harmony, plants, animals, man, God. It's, it's incredible. It's paradise. This idyllic environment. No disease, no pain, no suffering, no death. All of these trees, beautiful, good for food. I don't know about pollen, but I can't help but think about that right now. Uh, all the fruit salad combinations you can come up with. I mean, they're, they're there and they're accessible. And so I just, I just imagine... Adam walking through that garden and, and looking at each of those trees. Just, wow! Look at that! That's incredible! And then, wow! That's amazing! And then reaching up and grabbing some fruit and chomping down and saying, this is so good! And then going to the next, chomping on that. This is, this is so good! I'm guessing pears tasted a lot better before the fall than they do now because I don't like pears, but... Um, but I don't think there was any fruit that he took down and, and like ugh, spit it out and disgust or anything like that. It's just, it's amazing. All of this provision. Everything's good. Again, Bruce Walke, he, he says this, Life in the garden is represented as a banqueting table. It's good for food and delightful to the eye. Humanity had no need to eat the forbidden fruit. Everything that Adam could have ever wanted was provided for him in the garden. So Adam, he lacks nothing. He's, he's made in the image of God. God breathes life into him. He has been given dominion over all of God's creation. He has the blessing of God, this bountiful provision of God, the very presence of God that's near to him. He's walking and talking with the Lord. And it's his paradise. It is. Now, again... Just consider what the first hearers of these words. Just think of Israel in that wilderness, that desert, that dry, barren wasteland. Just think of them meditating on the way the world was when God first made it. This life-giving river overflowing from the Garden of Eden, going, branching out into these four rivers, watering this lush 
tree-filled land, fruit to enjoy, gold everywhere, resources everywhere, precious stones everywhere, and here they are in this wasteland. And they can visibly see the difference between where they were and where they are now. God, He doesn't want them, He doesn't want us to forget to ever forget the connection between sin and misery. That's the, 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 that, that the difference between then and now, between paradise and ruins, what is the difference? It's sin. It's sin. Again, see it through Israel's eyes as they're wandering in the wilderness. God originally created them, planted them in a garden, placed them in it, placed man in it, provided food, water, all of these resources. They weren't nomadic. They were stationary. They didn't have to be wandering around. They, 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 had, they were just planted in this place of God's blessing, His shalom. Everything they could possibly imagine. Paradise. And here they are looking at these ruins around them, saying, what happened? What happened to this place? What went wrong? That brings us to the third feature of what this life was like. And this God places them in this garden. And it's this is God God created us in the beginning to to work from the place of rest. Now I'm going to develop that in just a moment. But he, he created us to work from the place of rest. But he created us to engage in this productive, fruitful, satisfying work. So look again, verse 15. A couple verses left. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Now just stop there. We're thinking, he's already said that. He said this in verse 8. And then so why, why is he repeating himself here? Well, he did say that in verse 8, but he used a different word when he talks about he put him in the garden. The word here isn't just simply a geographical location. He dropped him in the garden like that. The word here is it's the Hebrew word for rest. It has to do with rest. God the better translation maybe a literal translation God caused him to rest in the garden. That's the word. And we saw the significance of rest already. I know it was a few weeks ago and and at the end of uh, Genesis, uh, the creation account, Genesis 2, 1 to 3, God rested on the seventh day, blessed the seventh day. And, and so, but here, God causes man, the first man, to rest in the garden. He, he, the garden is a place of rest. It's a place of peace. It's a place of nearness, the nearness of God, resting in His presence. And, so it's, and it's also a place of work. So out of that rest, God says, you need to work. God caused Adam to rest in the garden. Why? To work and to keep it. And so rest and work, they're not incompatible in the beginning. And they're not going to be in the end either, in our future. But, but work isn't part of the curse. That's not work itself. The toil, the sweat, the struggle, the, uh, the, the difficulty of work, that's, that's what's going to be part of the curse. And we'll see in Genesis chapter 3. But even in paradise, Adam's given a job to do. He's placed in the garden to rest, and to work. And God puts him there to do two things, to work it, to work it, and to keep it. Work it, this idea of cultivating it, and to keep it, 
it's not it's not exact synonym of of working it. So it's not the keeping it is not like uh, pulling weeds. Well, there were no weeds to pull. Hallelujah. Um, but it wasn't just making sure it looks nice. You know, let's keep the garden tidy. That's not the idea. The idea of keep is to guard it. It's to guard it. So cultivate it, guard it. Now we're going to see Adam fails on all accounts. <laughs> he failed to cultivate. He failed to guard. Did he ever? Um, he failed to exercise dominion, what we saw back in chapter 1, over creation. And you know what else he did? He failed to rest. He failed to rest in the presence of God and work from that rest. And the fall will bring about a curse on the earth. So the earth is now resistant to man's efforts. Boy, do we know that. As we look around the ruins around us here, we, we, we are gardening season, spring is coming, and just the agrarian life that we know, which isn't hardly anything, but uh, planting uh, potted tomatoes, we realize that there's, it's just not the way it's supposed to be. We still cultivate, but what do we encounter? We encounter thorns and thistles and weeds and disease and pests and all of these things. But even though we work under the curse, I, there's, there's this remnant, remnant that continues on. There's, there's value in work. The sanctity of rest and work are both seen here in the, in the beginning. Um, and so we, we, we see that very clearly. Last feature, and I want to accelerate here, but the last two verses here, and, and say it this way, God, God created man created us to be morally responsible to Him. This is, this is the way things were right in the beginning. He created us to be morally responsible to Him. Verse 16, And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Wow! It's like going into, someone taking you into Baskin Robbins and saying, you, you can eat of every tub in here and just have at it. Uh, it's all yours. I mean, aren't God's commands burdensome? No. I mean, it's just incredible generosity on God's part. It's all there for Adam's extravagant enjoyment. Just, you can eat from everything. And I mean, I realize we read this passage and we know it's coming, but we read this passage and, and, and it's the one no that we usually focus on. It's the don't. It's the prohibition. And we miss out on this bounty of verse 16. You, Adam's given a thousand yeses and to that one no. He says he eat, eat from all of it. He could enjoy all that the garden had to offer him. It was a garden full of yeses. Yes, 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 yes. Eat, eat, eat. It's all good. But there was one no, and that would become the snare for him. And in Genesis 3, we see the serpent successfully block from Adam's view all of those yeses. And, and put the spotlight on that one no, that one prohibition. He, is, he still has the same trick up his sleeves today, brothers and sisters. This is still how he, he snares us. He tries to block from our view all of the good things we have that God has given us to enjoy so that we can see the, the one thing we don't have. And if all we see is what we don't have, the things that God, the, the, the things that God hasn't given us, then we'll begin to think God is stingy or cruel or mean. And we'll forget that God's, even that God's no's are equally overflowing with His love and His favor as His yeses are. 
And so he says, you, you may surely eat of any of these trees. Or little, literal translation, I say this because we're going to come back to it. It's literally, eating you shall eat. Eating you shall eat. Just file that away and we'll come back to that. Um, then verse 17, but, a little reversative, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there's, there's clearly this, this tree of knowledge and good and evil that he just passed and by an, a quick reference earlier. Now he's coming back and it's in the spotlight. There's this unusually strong appeal of this tree. Again, I'm going to read one more quote from Bruce Waltke. I think this is very helpful. What, he says, what could have made one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so attractive in comparison to the full range of colors and tastes that abounded in the garden? But this is it. The tree, the appeal of the tree was not simply just knowledge. It was, it was power. It represents human autonomy, human independence from God. That's, that's what's at stake here. Here's the point. If you, if you don't rely upon God for, for the revel, God's revelation for knowledge of good and evil, you're going to rely upon something. And what is that? It's going to be yourself. You're going to look inside yourself. The heart of the original sin is sidestepping God and His Word and His will in order to become wise. It's saying, I'm going to do it my way. We're, we're made by God, our Creator, to know good and evil by relating everything to God, not to ourselves. But when Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit, they began to do what God does. They began to relate everything to themselves. And in that way, man began to think of himself as the center of the universe, to, to think of himself like God. That was the serpent's temptation, right? Now, that was a lie. Man's not the center of the universe and cannot be. But, but this tree, it stands there that, that would tempt Adam and Eve to seize this moral autonomy. And in so doing, to reject God's authority as to what is good and Evil, And so the, the test is, would they reach out and take in their hands, not just knowledge of, of good and evil, but the power associated with that knowledge? That's the real temptation. Would they be content with all that God had given them? And then God gives the consequence, this is why you don't eat of the tree, Adam. For in the day that you eat of it, and listen carefully, remember that little bookmark I told you to put down, in the day of you eat it, Dying, you will die. So you hear that? Any tree in the garden, eating, you shall surely eat. But if you eat from this one, dying, you shall surely die. As a stark uh, analogy, contrast is set up there. So does God have in mind physical death? Yes. But there's something far more threatening as a consequence of eating this tree. And it's spiritual death. It's separation, alienation from God. And that's, that's, that's immediate. And that's what we'll see in a, in a couple weeks. At, at the physical death comes later. But dying, you will surely die. It's very emphatic. In other words, God's saying, listen, Adam. I've given you incredible abundance. There's nothing you lack for your enjoyment, for your sustenance, the, just, but make sure you know to it. The death penalty f- is there for disobedience. And on the very day you disobey, dying, you will die. 
There is so much at stake, isn't there? And we're going to see it's not simply a matter between God and Adam. This is an issue between God and the entire human race. That's what's at stake. Well, this command, it, it demonstrates the fact, and this whole passage here, demonstrates the fact that, that, that man is in covenant relationship with the living God. God Himself, Yahweh Elohim, is Adam's covenant Lord. In this garden, God enters into this special relationship with the very first man, Adam. There's, there's, take note of this. There's no outside force that's compelling God to do this. This is, not, this is not because God has to do this. It's simply out of His love and out of His goodness that He does this. God graciously condescends to make man and to make him in his own image and then to enter into this special relationship with man. He breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He pours out all of these blessings upon him, blessing after blessing after blessing, and he enters into this relationship. What is the nature of this special God-initiated relationship? Well, it's positive and negative. You see it in these commands here in verses 16 and 17. We positively cultivate, guard the garden. And then negatively, one prohibition. And there's a consequence attached to it. And so this, this ongoing relationship that God has initiated and, 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 and brought to Adam, it's, it's conditional upon Adam's obedience. And by that I mean there is no provision for continued blessing beyond... Uh, the, the continued blessing in Genesis 2, if Adam isn't faithful to these obligations, he cannot expect to be blessed, to enjoy these things. And we all know the rest of the story. Adam was disobedient. And he plunged the entire human race into sin and misery. And this is why we look around and say, look at these ruins. Imagine what it used to be like. Look at the way it is now. This is where it began. Now, why is it so important to recognize that this original relationship was based upon obedience? Why is that important to make that point? Because later, we're going to see that our salvation is based upon the obedience of the second Adam. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, obeyed God perfectly in order that we might be justly and graciously Saved by God. And so why is, this is, we ask, why is salvation by works? Why is salvation by our works so damningly wrong? And it is. Why is that? Because our salvation, it is dependent upon Christ's work, not our own. By His obedience. We don't contribute to His works. That's why it's so important that we remember that Christ's life on our behalf is as important as His death on our behalf. Because He both had to positively fulfill the law as well as negatively receive the penalty that we deserve by breaking the law. And so the Lord Jesus is that second Adam that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 5. Turn there with me real quick. Romans chapter 5 and we'll end with this. In Romans 5, we see Jesus obeying on our behalf, suffering for us. 
This is why it's such an offense to God when we say, you know, I will obey and by my obedience I will be saved. Because what is that suggesting? That Christ's obedience was either not enough or it was not necessary. But what Adam failed to do, the reality is Christ did. Jesus lived by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, and then the punishment that the first Adam brought onto the world, the second Adam, Jesus, paid in full. So let's end just simply reading Romans chapter 5, verse 15. Start there and read through verse 19. The free gift is not like the, trans, the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank You. We thank You that by Jesus' obedience we have been made righteous. And we thank You that the, even from before the foundation of the world, you, you, you saw and You knew and You put into place what was necessary for our salvation. And so we, we, we stand here today not, um, not because we're better, not because we've worked harder, not because our performance record is more exemplary than others, but we stand today here in Christ only by Your grace. We, we cling not to our righteousness, but to the righteousness of another, of the second Adam, Your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we thank You for the hope that that secures for us. And I pray that we would live in light of it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.